Hi, this is Tamson Granger. This is Dan Abulov. With Tamson and Dan read the paper on Sunday, September 26th, yeah. 2021. We just told you the 26th. We have a couple of <laughs> yes, couple guest we do. speakers. Well, we're, we flew all the way across the country to do this podcast. We've invested heavily. And who do we come up with as ideal guests? Tamson, would you like to introduce our guests? We have Noelle Borg. Noelle Borg. And her husband... Zeke, what's his name? <laughs> Zeke Abuhoff. Ezekiel Abuhoff, uh, otherwise known as our uh, son and daughter-in-law, uh, who were visiting on the occasion of the first birthday of Pepper. Pepper Jean. Who, uh, I will just tell you right now, uh, is sleeping, taking a nap, and we want to keep it that way. So we're going to keep our voices down. Uh, <laughs> uh, Pepper's given us a wonderful weekend. And we're, I don't mind saying, we're in Ventura, California. And they need the publicity out here. It's very nice. Yeah. It's very nice. We we really like it. Perfect weather. I think one of our neighbors said that it's like on, they've done some study that said that it's one of the top two best locations for weather in the entire world. Whoa. Is that right? Well, San yeah. Diego's got to be. Where's people always say San Diego. I don't know. This is from our neighbors. Uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, now that I know we're number two, I'm really curious where number one is. Well, we I move there. All you know is that your neighbor's trying to sell their house. That's what I'm, that's, <laughs> that's, that's clear enough. But it's nice that we've discovered that you have know, easy proximity to the coast, uh, nice coastline. It's, it's very nice. It's very nice out here. Uh, but let's let's get to the main attraction here on this particular weekend because the birthday girl, one year old Pepper. So how do you think the Pepper thing is going? You know, <laughs> the Pepper's, the pepper the pepper's life. <laughs> well, they, at one year, you think it's uh, the program's okay? Yeah, I think <laughs> I think that people say what did say it's the longest shortest year, and I think that's true. It was one of the harder years of my when life. you say that, you're kind of hedging your bets. No, she, I think that was a good answer. The longest, shortest year. The longest, shortest year. It's been, it went, it flew by. She's awesome. She's really fun to watch. It's been fun to watch her grow up. Great baby. Wood raise again. <laughs> Five stars. Five stars. Five stars. Well, I think, you know, how, what do you think, Tapson? You're the grandmother who, uh, you know, is completely unbiased and sees her in, in a totally neutral fashion. What do you I think, Pepper? So. Yeah, she's... Super scrumptious. She's outstanding. Yeah. She's outstanding. Well, let me just say, because my... But yeah, I mean, it's all true, isn't it? All, all the cliches. What? Then we want... You know, you find, you find, you're completely beside with your grandchildren. They're, they they look beautiful, yeah. et cetera, and so forth. So I can't trust my own opinion. Oh, come on. I think she, she, I'm, I'm not yeah. as biased as you are. But it's a lot of fun. You're, you're finding it more fun being a grandfather than you thought, right? Oh, yeah, I didn't really think too much about it. But I, I think she's uh, captivating. But, you know, uh, well, one interesting thing, even beyond going about all well, the superlatives who might, uh, you know, uh, apply to Pepper. So, you know, we had, uh, you guys set up a virtual birthday party. Everything's virtual these days. And so we had, you know, people from across the globe uh, participating. Uh, and there were gifts that came in, uh, mostly from Sadie. But uh, other people had some gifts, too. But what's interesting to me about the gifts were two things. Um, one is that you guys have subscribed to a, um, you know, a good toy for children type subscription thing. It's sort of, I this is not a sponsored podcast. No, but what's the, what's but the maybe it should be. What's the service called? That's called Love Every. Right. So they send you a box every month or something with toys? Um, yeah. I think it's for 
for babies, it's every two months. Yeah. And then once they're a year old, I think it's every once, like once a quarter. Yeah. So what's interesting to me about that is I can tell you, Tams, if you had asked Tams and I, which you should do once in a while, uh, for advice, uh, we would have told you that's going to be a total loser. Those kind of educational toys are losers. The kids hate those kind of things. And it turns out not true. She loved everything in that box. Is that true, Tams? She was uh, captivated. Captivated. Like those people know what they're doing. <laughs> So I was. So was, love every come to Tamsin and Dan. Great toys. And it's an incredible value. <laughs> what you want to do is go to loveevery.com slash Tamsin and Dan. But wait, but, 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 but we get really the kickback from that Pepper sponsorship. Easily be working for this. She could be. She, she's getting money on the side. But the mm, other funny she's thing. She's sly like that. But I will. And she got a lot of wonderful gifts from many people, as I said, including Sadie, maybe even including her parents. But uh, the one gift that really struck me that happened to come from us. Um, was Tamsin put in a big box along with other things uh, a chair that's been in her family for years I presume Tamsin. many it's, years many, it, many it's years. a child sized rocking chair I sit, sat in that chair possibly my father sat in that I, chair it's got to be 100 years old right? no it's like it's it's over 120 years old right oh my goodness it's, it's, it's from the late 19th century well, wow and it's wood and a thatched Seat. What would you call rush, it? A rush seat. Rush seat. Yes, of course. Cane, and, not yeah. rush. And but here's what's interesting to me about that. Um, she really took to the chair. But what's great about it is, and it's not even this particular chair. You know, when you think of it, it's kind of a brilliant concept because for the child to have her own chair uh, really seemed to add something. Whereas before, she's either plopped down on the ground. Or she's kind of trying to maintain her balance standing up, which she does reasonably well, but not for any length of time. Now she has her own chair, and she picked up on it immediately, and she was in that chair and getting in and out in her own way, and then standing up once in a while, taking a couple of steps, and participating a different way. It seems such a, it seems such a brilliant thing. Uh, <laughs> doesn't it? Yes. Yeah. And in fact, in the world, there is much children furniture. Is there? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Who knew? (laughs) (laughs) And perhaps this is why we happen not to own very much because we're just oblivious. (laughs) Right? And once your children are 20 or 30, they're not using those items anymore. We haven't had any furniture that small so far. And so Pepper seems delighted by it. She'll just sit down and look at us with this big (laughs) grin that says, It's mine. This is for me. Exactly. Look who's sitting now. And she's participating. (laughs) We're all sitting and she's sitting too. And, you know, so anyway. So, uh, but anyway, we had a good time with that. So, uh, you guys, I don't know if you want to say anything, uh, maybe perhaps a little less positive about Pepper, but otherwise we can, <laughs> we can move on to the main subjects and Tamsin can sort of whoop us yeah. around the globe here. Happy birthday, Pepper. We Happy love birthday. you very, very much. We love you so much. All right. You got to cover yourself in case she listens to the, to the podcast. Yes. There's no question. Yeah. 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 All right. So, uh, oh, yeah, Noelle and Zeke are first up with uh, an article about interruptions. Hmm. Hmm. <laughs> yes, of course. Okay, let's go. To I read didn't up. read this article, if I'm being honest, so we're gonna read this I didn't article. get the I didn't get a link to it. Oh, oh my god. Okay, so I, I read this article. Perhaps yeah, perhaps Zeke is leading this. Here's this uh, I believe it was in the opinion section in the New York Times and it's about the concept of interrupting people in conversation and specifically pointing out that uh, many linguists have said that uh, it's 
there's, there's a lot of evidence that this is not always a bad thing, that interruptions have a bad reputation. People think of them as being mean or rude. But there's a whole concept of conversation style in linguistics, wherein uh, a lot of people, perhaps even a lot of specific societies or cultures, a lot of linguistic traditions, uh, have interruptions as part of their conversational style. Right. Um, and I would just say they came up with a name for it. Cooperative. Cooperative overlapping. overlapping. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Isn't that great? You like it overlaps there? That's <laughs> nice. So uh, if you like that, you'll, you'll love using cooperative overlapping in your own life. The example that the author uses in this uh, article is to describe a dinner conversation that included people from several different areas. And the people in the conversation who were from New York seemed to do a lot of cooperative overlapping somewhat to the consternation of other people in this dinner conversation. Some of those other people said afterwards, oh, we couldn't get a word in edgewise. There was, you know, just you folks going back and forth. We were waiting for a pause. I was waiting for my opportunity to speak. Whereas to the New Yorkers, this was a normal conversation where some people simply weren't opting to be part of it. Right. And then I should mention that there were three New Yorkers, two from people from California and one person from London. And Californians especially felt uh, that the New Yorkers wouldn't shut up. Mm-hmm. Well, I have to tell one story. My first Thanksgiving with your family, I remember being like, I can't keep up. Like, from Colorado, being around a bunch of people from these fast-talking Yankees, I was like, I couldn't understand everything that was happening because it was happening so fast. And it took you know, my more years of living in New York where I began to get comfortable, like, listening and understanding the whole conversation. My comprehension was not there for the speed at which people go. And it is, sometimes I'll find myself being like, I don't want to interrupt, you know. (laughs) My my father-in-law speaking or Granger and you guys having a conversation, but I'll have a thought and I'll be like, I'll just wait until there's a pause. And then it just never (laughs) happens. (laughs) And so at some point, I'm just like, I got to say something, and I just have to jump in. Or I just let it go. do not think they're being rude. No. I think it's a way of, that interrupting is a way of participating and showing your enthusiasm. You know, you can't, you know, wait to say what you have to say. And they expect you to reciprocate. Exactly. So once in a while, you're around people who don't get that. I I will say that when, when the kids were growing up and and... Ranger and Zeke would go on sometime. Sadie would say, uh, wait. <laughs> to slow them down or to shut them up or something. Yeah. But just, just to turn up the faucet, you, you, that is kind of a tough, tough act to run into. Well, but, this does bring up an interesting thought, which is like there is some individual variation in this. Not everyone's going to talk the same way, even if they're from the same place. And also one thing I was wondering about as I was reading this is Uh, the different kinds of conversations where this sort of thing can happen. Because mainly in this article, they focus on, you know, cooperative overlapping, which really puts a very positive spin on this. And certainly not all interruptions are positive. Uh, And I think that there's probably something you could get from the the context, right? That the idea of a friendly conversation between people who are mostly agreeing with each other, those interruptions probably are cooperative in some regard. But I think part of the negative reputation for interruptions is that there are are contexts where it's not so positive. You know, if you interrupt someone to tell them how terribly wrong they are, if you interrupt someone before they get to saying the thing that they really wanted to say, I think it's not too surprising that people wouldn't like that. So I just, I wonder about the different 
factors that could complicate this beyond just uh, your your kind of regional conversational style. Yes, I wouldn't bring it into your next argument. <laughs> <laughs> New Yorkers figure if you have something important to say, you'll get in there. You know? um, but uh, we should mention some of the cultures, some of the other cultures besides New Yorkers that see cooperative overlapping as a positive active form of participatory listenership include Antiguans. These are, these are from various uh, linguistic papers people have written. Samoans, Japanese, Italian-Americans. That doesn't surprise anybody. And uh, well, this article mentions... What is that crack <laughs> <laughs> um, and, I think Well, I think... I Italian-Americans is... I'm, so we um, move, move on. All right. The bigger lesson is that... Russians, Indians, Pakistanis, Armenians, and Greeks. It's all over the place. You know, you yeah. know, so, so it's not just saying like, you know, oh, we've all heard about those fast-talking Samoans. Like that's not, that's not necessarily <laughs> the takeaway here. It's that, you know, this is just a, a feature of language that may vary from place to place, but it's really and, just and, kind and, of particular to that, that area. And it's not necessarily some sort of indication of is this person or is their culture rude or aggressive right, right. or like too fast or too slow? It's kind of more arbitrary and varied. Well, you're that. like excited to jump into the conversation. Yeah. And I feel like that's kind of, that's definitely something like when you're with your friends and you're like, oh my God, that's happened to me too. And you, you, you jump in because what they're saying is interesting to you. Whereas if you're like not really necessarily paying close attention, you might just let them go on for a while while you stare at the ceiling. <laughs> I have to say, I do it's have a terrible anecdote. conversations you're having with your friends. <laughs> I, ha- I have an anecdote um, that I was with once in a group, and uh, I was talking to somebody, and the other people in the group were talking amongst themselves, and we were about to, um, a question arose with us, and um, one of the people said, and the other people were talking, and the other person turned to me and said, uh, well, I don't want to interrupt. And I thought, why not? <laughs> What's wrong with interrupting? <laughs> I don't get it. Um, and uh, well, you know, I will say uh, one more thing that they don't mention in the the article, which is uh, another kind of region that I've heard uh, being opposed to interruptions, which is actually uh, broadcast speaking. That I've heard that it's uh, something that you learn, I guess, when you're being trained to be in some sort of broadcast medium, like being a TV commentator of some sort. That you don't talk over people because it immediately makes uh, the conversation harder to follow for whoever's watching this. Sure. Maybe right. so. Yeah. So the idea being that uh, you know some people become very used to this if they work this sort of job, where if then someone else starts talking, they could be in the middle of the sentence, they'll just stop, yeah. they'll spontaneously stop, and like kind of basically allow the interruption to go ahead, um, just because you so much don't want uh, you know talking over talking to happen mm-hmm. in the. The recording. So you're saying we have to send Dan to broadcast? <laughs> no, no, no. You guys don't. That's one takeaway. <laughs> is that in, when you're in court or when you're in any kind of legal uh, setting, you often can't interrupt because the trans the there's a, someone transcribing the conversation. And if you get into a situation where one person interrupts and one other person is talking over, so then they also start typing they, on two typewriters at the same time. It's the, very the, challenging. The, yeah, the the, 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 uh, the proverb will throw. Up. His or her hands and say, I, I, I don't pay enough money to do this. I'm not doing this. And, and you got to stop in your tracks. So that's why I'm at least trained not to interrupt. That's why I don't. But I can understand your mother is, uh, you know, not basically, uh, you know, restrained in that way. But it's, it's, 
I, I think we should move on. I think yeah. we spent enough time trying to justify I agree. <laughs> our, our, our behavior. Uh, so I found uh, a fun article. I was uh, going through the um, Digital New York Times, and I saw this headline, Their Produce is pristine enough for picky chefs, but they give it all away. And uh, the couple behind Carversville Farm believe that everyone deserves high-quality food, so they donate most of theirs to kitchens feeding the neediest in Philadelphia. This is the story of Tony and Amy Durazio, and uh, uh, they have a farm, uh, here it says Mechanicsville, PA, which is right next to Carversville. Then their their farm is the Carversville Farm, the Carversville Farm Foundation. And they have over 300 acres where they grow produce and they raise cattle and ducks, um, ducks or chickens, chickens. Um, turkeys, and uh, over 100 pounds of food every year are given away to soup kitchens. And what makes it interesting is they treat the soup kitchens uh, like, um, you know, restaurants making an order from a, you know, from a supplier. And so these uh, places can, you know, order exactly what they want of these uh you know, uh, organic, uh, I don't know, is it organic? I can't remember. No, they didn't say what Certified it organic. Oh, did sp- it? Yeah. Okay. 388 acres. Um, and uh, they make up an order. And, and so this is, as opposed to many soup kitchens, rely on the cheapest possible stuff. Well, yeah. Or rely on donations. They have to somehow craft an edible meal out of what is donated, yeah, I, but I, uh, I, leftovers from other restaurants, I don't think the problem is that they need the ability to order so much the, the quality of the produce and the, and the quality. No, it makes a big difference if you're menu planning yeah, well, to be true. able to say, yeah, yeah. I want you know pound, this many pounds of beef yeah. and I need potatoes and carrots well, and look, it's, it's a, it's as a, opposed to just having a, totally a basket of stuff. Impressive program. I, you know, it's, it's kind of unbelievable. The guy, the family behind it who have a lot of money because they had a business that was really a place. They had a business see. called Vertical Screen, which right. screens job applicants for right. companies and all right, for many years. They're looking to, to see what you know what they should do with their money they want to um that they had gone to school in philadelphia and were concerned about the poverty and the hunger in philadelphia specifically and how do you get those people fed and merely donating money to various agencies wasn't doing it okay money wasn't being used efficiently you know the problem's not disappearing they wanted a more direct uh, method where they are giving good food directly to people who feed people directly, and uh, I think it's a great thing. They they it's funded by this foundation, which is their which, foundation, which is their money basically. Yeah. They also accept donations of money right. to run it. They have some volunteers helping out. They employ uh, about um, seventeen people working there. And uh, it's just a total. Yeah, it's, it's I think applaudable. Amazing. They sell a little. They donate ninety percent. They sell about ten percent, like a ten percent at. Uh, they run a local farm stand. 
that basically the community demanded, can we have some fresh yeah, vegetables Yeah, because it's, too? I think that was the thing that struck me the most about that article was the, the pristine part, that it was like, these carrots are all the right size to make it easy for like julianning. So it's like, this is for chefs to make their... Right. They're not make big, it easier to prepare. Yeah, and not big industrial cheapo. You exactly, know. Yeah. and so and that that matters like what you said for the menu planning, but it also means it's better for the people who are working in the soup kitchens who are creating that, and also for the like the dignity, the, the consumers, the yeah, consumers. Like food. it's really nice to be able to eat food that's actually of high quality, especially if you're in poverty and you're supposed to pull yourself up from your own bootstraps. So it just seems like a a great great project, and I have to say, I think we ride our bikes by um, part of the uh, acreage of this farm. Oh, you'll have to point it out every, to me. Our Sunday yeah, ride look, the thing goes right by. That struck yeah. me is they said, and I don't know how precise this figure is, they said that the operating expenses were $1.5 a year. And given the scope of this and given the impact of this, that's not a high number. That struck me as an extremely low number. But if it's true... It does give one pause to think that you could make such a difference with a million and a half dollars a year because a million and a half dollars a year is not that much money. They're talking about 100,000 pounds of food. So, I don't know. I mean, maybe you can I think do that. I think that's part of the benefit of this this direct exactly. model. Exactly. Is, yeah. is that you're not dealing with all, like, paying for all the kind of middlemen in the, in the process. If you can say, we're going to grow it and then we're going to bring it. Yeah. To the soup kitchen, you know. Well, then it's genius. What can I say? I mean, yeah. uh, it's a big deal. So, Tony and Amy Durazio, yeah, good. All right. Good on All you. Right. So, here's something that's good, and not everybody wants to acknowledge it, but uh, let's take the politics out of it. Uh, Operation Warp Speed, which apparently the seeds of Operation Warp Speed uh, go back to uh, 2000, uh, to 9 11, really. And following 9-11, you may recall that there was the, the anthrax scares. The, the, the congressmen were getting envelopes with anthrax in the envelope, and they were concerned about some kind of chemical poisoning. And what that really led to was the formation of a government agency which would focus on making sure that the country is in a position to respond to biological weapons and that sort of thing. Uh, more broad than that, to be honest. But um, they developed something called the Biomedical Advanced Research and Development Authority, or BARDA. And BARDA started working on uh, the idea of putting uh, themselves and, and the country in a position to respond, if it had to, to uh, difficult situations, including uh, situations such as pandemic situations. Uh, so that goes a long way back. And the problem that they realized that they had, and went through various uh, development phases, was that the, the, the way the government first approached the idea of the development of vaccines, because they wanted to be ready, was one in which they'd say, look, uh, here's the way it works. Companies, if they want to develop vaccines, have to self-fund the research and development. And maybe they'll get approved because we have a tough approval process, but you got to get approved, of course. And then the government is going to be the one who's going to be the buyer because they're going to be administering the vaccines. And we're going to pay what governments normally pay, which is not that much. And guess what? You weren't going to get any vaccines that way. So uh, they eventually figured this out and they came up with a public-private uh, partnership model in which the government did invest and did pay uh, for things like research and development to some degree. So it was a partnership and it required some investment by the government and it paid off. They say here that, you know, there was all kinds of uncertainty how, qu how quickly they were going to be able to develop back the vaccine here for uh, covid uh, and there was great concern about how people were going to say the government had wasted all this money by investing in these private companies' efforts. 
uh, if in fact there was no successful uh, vaccine development. In fact, there was vaccine development. Uh, and uh, the article does go on to explain how much more successful the U.S. vaccine development was than even in European countries. Uh, and it was because of this kind of model, which is kind of odd because that's uh, not the normal capitalist model. But it's one that, uh, whereas the European governments are more socialist oriented, and yet they took a purely free market model and they ended up with less vaccine. Uh, it is, I will tell you, in terms of pure economics, a justified model. Even if you're a capitalist, you recognize that there are some things that are called public goods that people have to cooperate with because the consumption by one person does not diminish the consumption by another person. So you can't deal with it in a normal way. The best example we used to use was swimming pools. Community swimming pools are a public good. Uh, but the sexier example is uh, national defense because it's not like we all have our own ICBM missiles. Uh, that doesn't really make any sense. There are such things as public goods, and that's where even a capitalist doesn't object to the idea of the government stepping in. So in any event, I thought that was an interesting article. Yeah, that was, oh. Sorry. Sorry for cooperatively overlapping with you. I was just going to point out that I heard that uh, some other, like that even on a scientific level, the uh, vaccine development was, was in ways many years in the making. That yeah. the, the Something about the uh, like RNA-based technology yes. for the it's vaccines true. had been something they've been researching for years. And uh, this is something that... that isn't always recognized that, that, that it can be frustrating for scientists to hear like, oh, I guess we just made the vaccine in a few yeah. months. And they're saying, yeah, after I spent a decade figuring out how to manipulate RNA. Right. Um, so it's interesting to see how some of those things come together. And, and sometimes these crises are much more about readiness and, and long running processes than they are about uh, kind of crisis response. I was listening to an NPR thing a long time back where they were talking about this, this I think actually like the Reagan years were kind of when we went through this shift in this com in this country where we stopped thinking about government funding as a positive thing where like we started seeing like when the government does something it's bad like the DMV sort of thing whereas like they, if you go as just like to land the moon landing it's like NASA was a government funded thing and it got us to the moon and this was like a big accomplishment for our country so to me it's sort of like yeah, it turns out if you put money into things, it goes well. Oh, well, but they, but wait, 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 let me just draw a critical distinction. I agree with you. We put money in things, it goes well. And government funding is necessary in cooperation with private organizations. But where this barter program really took off and became beneficial, became uh, useful and successful, was they recognized almost immediately that to set up a government agency to develop vaccines, and even if you funded it, would not work. That the way to work to work it was that the government fund private organizations. And that's why it's the public-private partnership that works. Mm -hmm. uh, but in the article, and the article is written by the people who are heading BARDA for the last 20 years, uh, and, and they said, no, no, a government agency would never do this. So it, it, it kind of cuts both ways. They think the way they did things was the right way to do things? They, they, they do indeed. <laughs> <laughs> and they, they do indeed. It's well, public-private partnerships, sometimes they work, sometimes they don't. Well, look, it's, that's a complicated... That's the article. That. That's the yeah. article. That's yeah. the article, okay? But uh, they, they, they did, you know, consider for about 15 seconds whether she'd have a government agency do this without private, uh, you know, private uh, development, and they rejected that. But anyway, go, go ahead. What, here's the article that's the most controversial. Ooh. <laughs> um, <laughs> all right, the headline for this article in the health section, it's written by Gretchen... Reynolds, who writes a lot of 
health articles for the New York Times. Your workout burns fewer calories than you think. Bum, bum, Our bodies compensate for at least a quarter of the calories we expend during exercise, undermining our best efforts to lose weight by working out. I mean, this is the most depressing article it's you the, could it's, read. You're over, you're over interpreting. But tell yeah, us because what, by what your scientific getting. background, you know. No, right? but, but because because <laughs> the word undermining is always really a left turn. They say that it, you burn less. It doesn't mean you don't burn calories. They say you burn twenty five percent less, as if you were running around. That's with a quarter a, of the calories. I, the quarter of the calories that you were counting was you were in your head. You were saying that this is two hundred forty calories. This is two hundred eighty calories. And instead, it's only going to be 197. Unless, Unless you're overweight, then it's 50%. No, no. Yeah. Okay. Well, some people, some people are right. counting calories. But this is in some ways a rebuke to the practice of counting calories insofar as it's saying your metabolism is complicated and to some extent unique to you. Right. right. But even if you're not counting, it's saying you're not getting the benefits. You're not getting the full benefits. Okay. Not saying there's, you're there's, benefits. There are, she says there's a study on African okay. tribes people yeah. Who are running and jogging right. all day, right. hunting down right. their dinner. And what did I what did and I... and their expenditure of calories turns out to be about the same as us sedentary Westerners. You know, first, sitting in a car I said, ordering from the window. As I said of first of all, it's a door dash now. It's not ordering <laughs> from the window. That's number one. You don't have to walk all the way to the car. Yeah. <laughs> Dinner comes to you. Exactly. <laughs> Come on, Tamsin. We got to be hep to these things. But but the other thing is, when I tell you the three sorriest words in the English language, there's a study because there there's a study. You know, it just doesn't doesn't do it. Science. This sounds like a bunch of fancy science folk trying to get us interested in their beakers and chemicals yet again. I say, fooey. <laughs> there is a study. I mean, I don't know. I, 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 I take the minus 25% figure. Fine. I, you know, think, I, I think basically, I, I read this as basically saying like, just basically more evidence from the, that we've seen before, which is that it is generally hard to exercise uh, yourself to thinness. That's yeah, just generally I agree. a difficult thing, an unlikely thing. And it's interesting to note in the numbers how they say it varies from person to person. So it's, it's not, you know, it's not that we're, we're all kind of playing with the same rules. You know, some people's metabolisms really do work differently than others. Um, and also just the idea that it's, it's, it would be nice if things worked out in this very simple way of adding up and subtracting these very simple numbers. You can't just look at a number on the back of a box and say, oh, that means I have to run an hour. It turns out that can vary some. It turns out your body is adaptive, that, that your, your body can respond to what you're doing sometimes to your consternation so it's probably more important to have have more of a more of a holistic view of healthy habits rather than thinking that you can plug in very specific numbers and get very specific outcomes here's how the article ends well, wait, do you agree with what half, you said or not half a cookie or half a can of cola yeah. after a half hour walk yeah. and you will have taken in more calories than you burn but but that's but that's not however so- much or little you compensate. Well, but but okay. So, but, it's, so there's no well, point. Well, well, no, Why well, do we walk at all? It, what like, is the point? You're ignoring the second half. The, the, the question you have to ask yourself: So, how many calories are in a half a bottle of soda? And the answer is a heck of a lot. So, uh, look, half I, a cookie. 
I, I don't know. Who doesn't uh, come back from a run and say, now I can have a plate of cookies? I, I don't come back from a run and say, now I have a plate of cookies. And now, well, you're out of question your is, are they, are they using the global standard cookie size? Yeah. <laughs> These are big question. cookies. There are few, few people who work out as diligently and regularly as you. Yeah. You should weigh about three pounds. No, 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 no. I'm, I'm satisfied with my physical condition. But I, I, this is your chance to disagree with me. But, uh, <laughs> oh, no. Go ahead, tell the world what you think. Let them know. You know. So, I'm just saying it's depressing. All right. I don't. Well, what's so. the point? They don't. What they don't say is look. What the message I'm sure they're not trying to send is well, two, for two things. First of all, what Zeke said, and I think the article said it's true. What you your body intake probably means at least as much and maybe more than your exercise program. And one without the other doesn't do anything. And number two is. The last thing they're trying to do in this regard, I'm sure, is communicate the message that we should all just throw up our hands and say there's nothing we can do about our general fitness. That, that's just not what the article is No, it's not about our fitness. It's uh, nothing we can do about our weight. Yeah, that's not what they're saying. Well, because let's I get frustrated I mean, when people get so focused on the weight as this very numerical thing. I think that's I, that's what I take away in part from this uh, article, which maybe my, my pre-existing bias, is that I think it's not a good way to approach... I don't know how you view your own body to just view it in these numbers and try to reduce everything to these numbers, especially a small set of numbers that, you know, you probably don't fully understand. And it's, it's reductive and probably leads you to bad habits to say like, well, I eat this much, uh, I, I eat these numbers, I need to work out those numbers and it'll all add up and I've got a very exact plan. It's probably yeah. a better idea to say, I enjoy doing this kind of exercise. I'm going to pursue that. Oh, I, I enjoy this kind of <laughs> food. I'm going to pursue that. And like, I feel good when I do this kind of thing. And to, to have that be your baseline. And if you want to oh. tweak it some from there, based on like some uh, science that you read, fine. But I, I just think it's you're going to be disappointed if you think that you're going to turn your whole body into also, a simple algebra right, equation. The, the unspoken thing here is like, what is our when we want to lose weight, we're trying to reach a desirable size, which is design, which is like. A desirable size is probably like dictated by the advertisements that we see, which are by design to make you not like the ba- the body that you're currently in. It's supposed to be an unattainable thing. Like that's how that's how advertising works for at least for women in body image and that sort of thing. So saying like, hey, like it might be true that like you're not supposed to be less than like X number of pounds because. Like, that would be unsafe for you. That would be underweight. Like, a lot of the images we see are, like, photoshopped to be a certain way. And you think that you're supposed to be a specific weight. And maybe you don't need to actually be that lower weight. And you can just trust that your body is protecting you from starvation. Well, your body is programmed, I think, (laughs) to survive. Yeah. So if you eat... Less food, things slow down. Yes, but if you if you ate nothing, you wouldn't survive. So programming notwithstanding. It uh, does what it can do. Yeah, it does what it can do. Right, no... But anyway, this is a can of words. Anyway, I found it, I found it depressing because I, I like to think um, when I go that extra mile, it has some it effect. It does, and it does. Apparently it just, not. No, it just doesn't. I think do... it's also diminishing returns. Yes, that's the that's the that's exactly right. I think they mentioned that in the article. She's right. It is diminishing returns, but you got to live with the idea of it's diminishing returns. All right. Well, you're going to cheer us up with a little baseball story. Well, there's nothing to do. I mean, (laughs) you know, uh, there's an article in the New York Times about um, about a guy who uh, found himself completely flummoxed by the pandemic, uh, so much so 
that he says he he's he seemed to have gotten into a depressed state, and I guess he was writing for the Times. So then he decided he wasn't going to write, and he was just sitting around. And then he got a uh, got him into a worse state, and then he got an assignment from the Times. They said, "Look, tell you what we're going to do: we're going to send you wherever you want to go, and uh, you know you can write about uh, emerging from the pandemic or something like that." And he decided, for whatever reason, he would just drive. He lived in the Seattle area to Spokane, Washington, and uh, go to a minor league baseball game. And he thought that would be the uh, turn of page that he's looking for. Uh, and that's what he did. And he ended up writing about going to Spokane uh, and going to a minor league game. And he had a uh, fantastic time, which is kind of bizarre because most of the articles saying how he couldn't cope, he couldn't deal, he, was, he thought people weren't sufficiently cautious. Uh, in terms of the pandemic, and he gets the... So the, he had fun, like, not wearing a mask, etc.? No, he wore Who a mask. Knew? He couldn't stop wearing a mask. And he's, he couldn't he's, stop. He's, he's sitting, and he goes to Spokane, and he ends up sitting in the stands of this game, the only guy in the whole stands wearing a mask. And instead of uh, continuing to soak, though, he, though, he gets uh, carried away. Carried away by exactly the things that you and I experienced in a minor league baseball game. He's carried away... Uh, by the mascots, he's carried away by the contests, he's carried away by the little kids running around, uh, he's carried away, they had a promotion where a hot dog, they would put a dollar or two in a hot dog once in a while and you'd be a big winner because you'd buy a hot dog and you'd get some money besides. He's carried wait a minute, away there's, by a, hot, wait a, minute, there's like, a dollar like, in the hot dog? Well, close like enough. you bite in? He didn't, he, Is he, the dollar under the hot dog between the Frank and the bun? He couldn't tell us because he didn't get the dollar. So uh, he says, <laughs> oh, matter of fact... Is, this is throwing me. I, I'm, now I guess I'm thinking about dollars and, and hot And he dogs ends now. up saying, you know, at the end, and he's going on about the, the mascot, the, the particular <laughs> mascot they have, and he finds himself screaming with the light. It's got to be a greasy, this mascot, greasy dollar at that point. Right? Uh, and he just has an amazing time. It's like he's in a different world and he's sitting there at the end and he's and he's trying to relate to his own experience and his own family and they have you know, what's called a diamond dash. They have all these kids running around the bases, all these little kids. And he says, here I was, the melancholy doof and the mask behind the dugout in Spokane. While all the other parents crowded in around me, screaming for their kids to round third and run home. Uh, so I don't know where that takes us, except that uh, it was minor league baseball. You gotta spend that dollar at the the stadium, I think, well, right? Because you can take that home. So he says, "I don't want this hot dog." He dollar. says he actually this says, "If you want the details of, of that uh, promotion," uh, he said, "Sometimes it's twenty dollars." Twenty dollars, twenty dollars. But said, anyway, we do. Um, we love minor league baseball. We do, and there, there's a, a fun uh, team near Limeport, the, the Somerset Patriots. Yes, who uh, their in stadium yeah. uh, in New Jersey, and, and who their stadium suffered uh, tremendously in the flooding we had a couple weeks ago, and uh, the stadium was flooded. It was so flooded that the pads around the the walls. You know the you know how there's padding so when the outfielders run to catch a ball they don't you know break all their bones, mm. like raised up and floated off oh, their wow. attachments to the walls and they are like floating around the stadium uh, like rafts. Um, so, uh, but uh, there right? have been great stories about the whole um, stadium community uh, getting together and. 
cleaning things up and drying things out and getting back in business ASAP. In nine and, days. And, and, nine days they were playing baseball. Yeah, and in fact, uh, our buddy Mark Snyder was uh, uh, at a game like uh, one of those first games after the flood. Hmm. He, he said it was great. All right, so, so you guys, in the last story, you guys were going to talk about something you saw in the Modern Love section. Modern Love, yes. It's just sort of a nice story about... Uh, couple that was long distance prior to the pandemic the woman lived in ventura which is where we reside um which i think pulled us in a little bit and the the man lived in santa fe new mexico and so it's like in somewhere we've been you know longing to visit (laughs) (laughs) uh it's like a 16 hour drive there from here and she and it takes about an hour and a half to get to lax from here so, and then once you get to Albuquerque, you have to drive another two hours to get to Santa Fe. So she was like, it's like six hours one way. So just this painful long distance relationship where they like thought that they would maybe she was about to move back. She wasn't really sure. And finally her job, she finally settled into buying a condo or living or rent, signing a lease in Ventura. And then the pandemic hit mm-hmm. and she, they finally got to be together. Because they're both working remote, right? Yeah, once they were working remote, they could live where they wanted to, so she could move to New Mexico. And that was a happy thing. Wait a second. She moved from Ventura to Mexico? Yeah. Why would you move from Ventura, which has the best weather in the world, to Mexico? No, New New Mexico. Mexico. Santa Fe. Any kind of Mexico. Santa Fe is a very cool town. It's not. Unless you think it's number one ahead of uh, Ventura in terms of weather, I don't get it. But uh, whatever. Well, you could argue that they they should have moved the other way. There you go. That's what I would say. Excellent. You know, I wonder. Fish. I wonder if there was a, a point for them in the in the negotiations about that, where he said, "This is great. Now you can move here." And there was a pause, and then she said, "Yeah, you could move here." Exactly. And he said, "Oh, I don't know." Well, there was some. <laughs> is that really practical? I don't know how we would do that. There was some joke about how he only had one drawer for storing things there in his place in his casita in New Mexico. But I think ultimately, New New Mexico is a little bit more affordable, which is maybe why they a little more what affordable. affordable. Yeah. Oh, is that yeah. I'm sure it is. That's true. That's, I mean, that's generally what, what our research has told us. You know, we recently... Yeah, you are living in the most expensive area yeah. in the world. <laughs> in the universe. California, yeah. yeah. Yeah, it's true. Everything's generally just terribly expensive in this whole region. So if you can move somewhere uh, like New Mexico, you can save some money. That's, anyway, that's also generally the, the kind of working remote dream, um, which I think is realized to varying extents from people, is the idea that you could live somewhere that you want to live where it's also cheaper and still be working your same job. Yeah, yeah you can have a better quality of life in terms of love and uh, yeah. um, cost of living mm-hmm. and uh, still be doing your job. Yeah. So one little bright nugget out of uh, all the pandemic disasters. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we planted squash and kale and tomatoes in the yard and made coffee for each other and went running. We did laundry, swept the floor, scrubbed hard water stains from the shower walls. And... Just like spending time together, like the banality of it to hers, she painted such a beautiful picture, which I thought was nice. Good for them. So on that heartwarming note. Yes. I mean, I should add add that uh, Pepper has joined us around the table, but she's indisposed. (laughs) Uh, So she's not going to say anything. Pepper, do you have anything to say? Uh, no, she just shook her head. She just shook her head. It's funny because you've been squawking uh, like crazy the last few days. <laughs> but keep your powder dry. Uh, we'll have you later on in the season. Okay, so uh, we better get back to uh, intense pepper appreciation. That's right. 
Say bye bye. Okay. All right. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, uh, Zeke and Noel and Pepper. And Pepper. And uh, this is Tamsin Granger. And Dan Abuhoff. With Tamsin and Dan read the paper. And uh, we'll be back probably from the East Coast next week. Thank bye you. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.